Hi, I'm Larry Reed, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm Doug Stewart, and joining us today again is Dr. Jamin Hubner. Dr. Jamin Andres Hubner is a professor of business and economics at University of the People and Western Dakota Technical Institute. He is a former associate professor of Christian studies, where he taught New Testament, Greek, and systematic theology for six years. He's also the editor of the Christian Libertarian Review, and he's here to talk to us about democratic socialism when he's writing a book on democratic socialism. So he's the guy to talk to today. Jamin, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me back. So democratic socialism, I wish we could say it were a fad. Um, I'm hoping it will fade over the next few years, if not the next few months, but I really seriously doubt it. And it's probably not because it's really popular right now. Um, I think you have a a more robust reason why it's not just a passing fad. Could you give us an idea? Because this is much to libertarian chagrin. This is not going to go away and we need to be able to deal with it. So why is this democratic socialism not a fad? Well, I think the big reason, kind of the existential reason, is that people are always looking to improve their lives. They're always looking to create a more just society. And so this is one model of getting there. But it's been around sort of formally for at least 100 years. And I mean, democratic socialism is not a, it's not a theory. It's in practice in a lot of European governments, whether the Netherlands or Germany or in Great Britain. And, uh, you know, the, the formation of the British Labour Party in uh, the early 1900s was sort of a big step into democratic socialism. And so that, that sort of is an important backdrop because people say a lot of things about it, but Honestly, we don't have to theorize too much because this is something that has been tried and with at least some degree of success in some way. That's debatable, of course. But yeah, I I think it's uh, becoming more part of American discourse because the American government is not at least identified that way. If you actually look at the charts of spending and interventionism in the American economy, it's not terribly different than these uh, European democratic socialist countries. It's fairly marginal in terms of, say, government spending per GDP or, or whatever. And so it's perfectly legitimate to call the United States economy democratic socialist. It's just socialist on a, on a lesser scale. That's something I write about is that socialism is not a binary thing uh, exactly. It's usually on a, on a spectrum. Anytime you have taxation, redistribution of wealth by government, that's a, a fundamentally socialist practice and idea. And so whether it's a 1% tax or a 99% tax, you still have the same function being carried out. Now, people will dispute, of course, when it's appropriate to use terms like that. But that's, that's why it's so, I think, combative and um, problematic is because these aren't things that are they're always binary and they do exist on a spectrum and on different planes too. There's different types of socialisms. There's different types of democracies and, and things like that. But I don't know. I guess um, I think with, you know, Bernie Sanders and uh, Ocasio-Cortez and others sort of using this terminology and proposing concrete uh, legislation and, and different, you know, uh, political proposals, 
it's it's reaching a point now where in the blogosphere and in public discourse, uh, the conversation of this topic is is higher than it's ever been. I can see why people would therefore see it as like a bubble. Uh, it's just a fad. But historically and in, in the big picture, I, I don't think that's the case. It does seem to be a pretty decent PR move to talk about it because even, you know, the word we often joke, I mean, I often joke with, you know, other libertarians that democratic socialism or socialism just seems to mean whatever makes us feel good about the way society works and capitalism or free markets are just the scary bad guy that, you know, gives us no control over our lives, et cetera, et cetera. And so it does seem like the conversation has shifted in such a way that it has become favorable in discourse to talk about it. And it's it's kind of the hip thing to embrace because, you know, we, we just know that capitalism doesn't work, which, again, I don't know what they know about capitalism. <laughs> you know, one of the big catalysts of that surge of conversation was, of course, the Great Recession of 2008 and nine, And a lot of the books I've been reading and researching were written a year or two after that, it prompted this huge hmm. spree of monographs and articles, you know, because this was uh, an icon of a failed economy. And to some people, it was an icon of failed capitalism. And that's always a tricky subject because we have to ask ourselves what capitalism is and to what extent the U.S. economy uh, would qualify. And as as you indicated, this conversation is usually dominated by this contrast between anything resembling or or the words uh, of socialism and capitalism. And you know, capitalism is just as much on a spectrum or qualified or should be qualified as much as, as socialism. And I think one of the big errors that I just, I'm so tired of hearing and exhausted uh, of seeing in the literature is that the last quarter century of American economic globalism should be characterized as a laissez-faire free market capitalism, which by any economic account is absurd. When you have a private central bank controlling the, the entire currency of a country, the, the bulk of the commercial banking sector, which has the majority of debt of the U.S. government, which also happens to have uh, the currency and produces the currency that is the world reserve currency. And when you have tens of thousands of pages of regulation in the financial sector that supposedly was laissez-faire, the banking sector, it's the most highly regulated sector. It's been that way for the last quarter century. When you have massive welfare programs and, and huge redistributive wealth programs, and on and on and on. You cannot possibly describe the U.S. economy as a free market economy in any, any purest sense or laissez-faire, et cetera. Now, I, I have to say that people are right to say that the global developments have largely been, quote-unquote, unregulated by national governments or, or international bodies. And so you have corporate colonization in different countries, you know, popping up in Africa, Latin America, where, where international corporations are, are growing. And that is, that is a different situation than, than planning a business in the U.S. But all in all, we cannot say on any reasonable level that whatever occurred in the Great Recession was the result of free market capitalism. And a lot of other critics, a lot of other democratic socialists, I've read probably a dozen and a half books by Christian democratic socialists in the last two months, 
Uh, a lot of them will qualify the terminology, and rightly so, saying finance dominated capitalism or neoliberal capitalism or neoclassical based capitalism or neo-capitalism or et cetera, et cetera. There's all these different ways of quality. And that, that's, that's good. That has to happen because capitalism exists in a lot of different forms and it doesn't look like it did a hundred years ago. And, uh, and that phase didn't look like it did 500 years ago and et cetera, et cetera. So, and I, I write about this in, in my work, which began as an article and kind of evolved into a book. There's kind of four major phases in the evolution of capitalism. And None of them really. I mean, the closest would be like the mid to late 1800s would be close to a so-called free market. But none of them really is sort of this abstract ideal of classical liberals or libertarians or anything like that. So that's just one of the many, many points of clarification in this conversation that, that has to happen. And thankfully, uh, some authors are careful about using these terms in that way. And, you know, I, I found myself really appreciating a lot of things and, and learning a lot of things and seeing different perspectives because there's actually a lot more common ground than I would have suspected between the discontents of self-proponent democratic socialists and uh, you know Christian anarchist libertarians like myself. But at any rate, uh, yeah, it, it will not suffice to simply argue capitalism versus socialism. This isn't helpful. It's hardly meaningful. And we really have to have a, a deeper level discussion to, to get anywhere. I've often been a little disappointed in the way that the discourse has gone when I've talked with people, say, on Facebook or uh, other forms of, you know, communication that, you know, when we talk about we libertarians, proponents of the free market, proponents of freedom, opponents of state intervention and coercion, argue with people about, oh, well, that's not really capitalism because, and, you know, you can list a good handful of things that demonstrate that that's not a real free market. And people get really, really frustrated because, well, they're like, well, you can't just say that that's not real capitalism because you don't like a certain element of it. And, you know, it seems like the flip is is true as well. And say, you have people saying, well, the socialism, say in Venezuela or Cuba or North Korea, oh, well, that's not what we're talking, mm -hmm. you know, and they say, well, we're talking about is things like social welfare programs programs like in the Norwegian countries mm -hmm. and so forth. And I agree with you. And I'm really glad that you kind of made the point that there isn't just like capitalism versus socialism, because there's a huge spectrum in both that you could kind of define yourself on. I guess the, the lead question here for me right now for you is in your research in understanding democratic socialism better, what would you want libertarians to know about democratic socialism proponents that they might not know already? or that they might not know without really listening. Because I, honestly, I don't really listen to democratic socialists and I don't really take them seriously. Maybe I should. Sounds like you might say I should. Yeah, well, you know, there's democratic socialisms and my focus is Christian democratic socialisms. And I've read, you know, a lot of books where, yeah, I, I like, like you, I was pretty ignorant about it and I didn't want to uh, misrepresent anything and, and I don't. And um, I know how frustrating that is. You know, like like there's 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 just agreement on some things. I think, uh, at least on a theoretical level, the concern, the biggest thing that really draws democratic socialists, as well as Marxist, post-Marxist, neo-Marxist, and others, you know, Christian anarchists, together uh, with libertarians, is uh, concern for concentrated power. That that's really number one. Is that behind all of the rhetoric is a is a legitimate concern for concentrations of power. And the reason why there hasn't been a meaningful conversation, I think, between sort of these groups is because 
Democratic socialists are, and, and of course, this is risky speaking on their behalf. Uh, you know, it'd be better to have an interview with them, but to the extent that I can properly represent it, they would, and they have in, in their writings, really, really stress the problem of private power. And they, they want people like you and me to see that it doesn't matter whether it's a politician or not, or whether it's a corporation or the state. Problem is power over people and exploitation of the vulnerable and all kinds of different injustices that result from that. Like power differential. Right. And I guess uh, a big thing is that, you know, crony capitalism, capitalism is a form of where, where private powers control governments or public power. Uh, is is a big concern to both of us, and I think uh, it's very fascinating to to listen to that interview between Michael Munger and Russ Roberts on Econ Talk. They were both talking with each other about the subject of crony capitalism a few months ago, and they came to a disagreement. And Russ Roberts was more optimistic, saying, "You know, these things will iron out; uh, they'll be taken care of. It's it's sort of a temporary thing." While uh, Michael Munger is saying, "Actually, this is a big problem," and uh, what I've learned from you know my my democratic socialist colleagues is that crony capitalism is a huge huge deal and and it's so prominent in American history it goes back to the 1700s I mean a lot of, there's a there's a book by uh, I think John Furling published by Oxford called The Leap in the Dark and it's a political history of the United States and he talks about all of the land investments of the founding fathers and their interests their private interests and so establishing the country wasn't just about freedom it was about getting as much land. <laughs> it was a real estate opportunity, right? And uh, that was just an interesting perspective that I haven't thought about before. And, uh, you know, Jefferson commented on the power of, of private corporations having on the government. And then, you know, all the way into the 1800s with the, with the railroad system and the cronyism between the courts and legislative bodies and tycoons in that phase of industrialism. And it, it got worse in the 20th century and it's super bad today. And so all that, I guess, capitalism then in terms of American history has almost always been crony capitalism. And if that's the case, then, I mean, the question is a hard one for you and me is like, well, where's, where's this other capitalism? If this is the way it kind of has always been, we're in the same situation when we criticize socialists saying, well, where's your socialist government when all it's been is statism and tyranny and death and stuff. Now, if we parallel those two, still, I would say the death count is vastly different. <laughs> and, it, and it probably always will be. I, I don't see how McDonald's and Monsanto are going to pump out 120 dead bodies. Now, I, I could be wrong, but to the extent that those two situations are comparable, I don't see them as equally threatening. Right. I read a meme once that said, you know, like, okay, let's agree that we've never had real capitalism, quote unquote, and we've never had real socialism. But what we have had is almost capitalism and almost socialism. And the track record of almost capitalism is a lot of prosperity. And the track record of almost socialism is a lot of misery and death. And so I don't know, I found that mm -hmm. I find that instructive on the one hand to lead into, okay, fine, let's just table the idea that we're going to have the ideal on either end. Yeah, well, let me turn the, the conversation around a bit. I was sort of describing how you know, things we can learn, you know, that democratic socialists would want us to know. If we, we, turn, if we turn that around a little bit, there's, there's just a rhetorical problem in the, the words and phrases we use like free markets, like capitalism, like global expansion or whatever. 
because here's here's what's happened is that in the last quarter century, you got people like Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher and Tony Blair and, and George Bush and, and Clinton. And th- this is th- they're all proposing what's called neoliberalism, which is basically neoclassical economics embodied in a crony capitalist state environment. And so when you have someone like George Bush or Blair or others saying we need markets, we need capitalism, this is the only way to go. Uh, it's the way to prosperity. It's extremely important for everybody to realize that they don't give a crap about economic principles. They are not saying this because they are invested in these ideals. They are saying it because it favors the companies that own them. Okay? That's really, really important because when I talk about free markets or you talk about free markets, I, I talk about capitalism. I have different reasons for why I'm making the arguments that I do. And I would have sharp distinctions from neoconservatives like Bush in, in the neoconservative political parties, the Republican Party and, and, and other people like that, that they would not tolerate. And so I guess what, what I'm saying is that when people hear us you know, praise the market system or praise capitalism, they hear the same thing uh, when they hear Bush or a politician praising markets and capitalism. But what, what's behind that is cronyism, is private, corporate, unjust practice, domination, greed, all the stuff that they're generally right about. And so we, that's, that's a point that we have to distinguish is that we're using the same language, but standing behind it are different qualifications and different reasons for supporting yeah, there's a there's a vast difference between the free market policies of somebody like a George Bush or Ronald Reagan, for that matter, and somebody like a Ron Paul. You know, if that's what you're calling capitalism, then that that definition <laughs> has a very, very just watered down meaning. Yeah, well, and there's good reasons why when Ron Paul had his conversation with Cornel West, the Christian Marxist, Democratic Socialist, he was interviewed by Tucker Carlson on Fox News months ago, or maybe it was a long time ago now, I can't remember. But um, West, who's a seminary, who was a seminary professor, I think he's at Yale or Harvard now, and uh, Ron Paul, who your listeners, our listeners are familiar with, they came away with a lot of agreement. And there are good reasons for that, is in this area of corporate control of governments, it's just a huge, huge problem. And Simply saying, well, we need a less lesser government doesn't answer that. It doesn't address that issue. The, the issues of classical liberalism mostly don't directly critique that problem. And so there needs to be a more nuanced and direct conversation about the problem of private control of uh, the public means of coercion. Many Christians are somewhat attracted to the idea of democratic socialism for a variety of reasons. And I know one of them is that, you know, it, it can be very easy to make the, you know, you can make the Bible say anything, but I, I've seen it done where people say that, oh, if you look at the early church, this is what genuine community looks like. And this is what God expects of people who take care of each other, et cetera, et cetera. And what they do is they use the Bible to say, well, we should have something that resembles some sort of democratic socialism because there needs to be safety nets and we don't want people to go without, you know, basic needs, et cetera. And so on the one hand, it's like, oh, okay, well, great, because the church has always supported and endorsed and encouraged the kinds of communities that are what we might call communal. Uh, We might call them miniature versions of socialism in a way, but that would be anachronistic anyhow. And so 
I just often wonder at what point do a bunch of people volunteering or willingly getting together and saying, all right, well, we're going to form this group and maybe there's a legal entity involved with that or not, but we're going to form this group and we're going to take care of ourselves and each other because we're together. At what point does that become? I mean, you could say that that's just 300 million people coming together and saying, well, we're just going to call ourselves American and this is what it's going to look like. And so we need to make sure that we take care of everybody. I mean, we can jump from the 30, you know, community to the 300 million, but at some point in between, it's not the same. Something mm-hmm. changes. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, what, what do you have to say with like things that resemble socialism, like mini socialisms uh, become this whole full blown thing? Yeah, well, well, first of all, a lot of the goals of democratic socialism, at least in theory, by by scholars like uh, Dorian or or Daly or Riger and a lot of others in this conversation, the goals are decentralized power, distributed goods according to need. You hear the language of common good and so forth. And like you said, more communal integration where it's not individualistic, uh, at least in the modern sense of that term. And where basically people are using their gifts for the benefit of the whole, kind of like that model of the church in, in 1 Corinthians about the, uh, the body. And so on, on that basic level, I sympathize pretty much the whole way. And, and especially when we talk about protecting the vulnerable in society, that's, that's a huge, huge Christian value in both testaments. And so, you know, so the question is, well, okay, how, how do we do that? Well, we have some indications from the scriptures, as a lot of different people pointed out. There's this distributism thing in the in the Old Testament with the land and the year of Jubilee and uh, the different prophets have spoken about people acquiring too much wealth and how they neglect the poor. And then in the New Testament, you have the Sermon on the Mount and things like uh, Acts 2 and 3, where the church shared goods and pooled uh, resources together for the use of each other. So there's there's a pretty good case for a Christian democratic socialism, if that's all that's meant. And uh, I don't really have a problem with that. The problem comes in when we condone the modern nation state. We just acknowledge its legitimacy without question. Or as a lot of scholars and authors do, they, they bless it because this is a supposedly a permanent sphere of society. I don't believe it is. And I, th- I don't think a lot of so-called institutions of society are permanent. But anyway, um, and uh, where th- that, that entity is entrusted with the power of simply achieving and enforcing social justice according to these ideals. And the reason that's a problem is because the nation state and the traditional political apparatus is a, a territorial monopoly on the means of coercion or the use of violence. And that doesn't change with democracy. It doesn't change whether it's a monarchy. It doesn't change with elections. It doesn't change with any of these modifications in democratic socialist models. And so that's kind of one of my big concerns. And so what you have is a conflation between distributism and, and socialism. And the two are not the same. I had, a, I had a friend who talked about how their church pooled together resources to help people pay off debt or, or to, to do better, like to function as that safety net. And you know, the comment was made that, well, this is great. This is socialism. No, it actually isn't. It's distributism. Distributism is just pooling your resources in for one reason or another, whether it's uh, for functionality or whether it's for the ethical concern of acquiring too much wealth and in and, and, and concentrating too much power. Alexander Salter, he uh, wrote a whole article on this in CLR and, and talked about, you know, Chesterton and, and De Lubac and, and a couple others who developed this program of distributism. And, you know, the big goal behind it again was 
distribution of power. And the big kicker there is, well, accumulation of wealth, this is basically synonymous with accumulation of power. And so uh, the answer in a distributist model is, how, how do we distribute, redistribute those assets? And uh, there's a lot of ways of doing this, though, and a lot of models that simply don't have anything to do with politics. And I think that's the one of the biggest hurdles is that your, your average democratic socialist has a huge, huge high regard for representative democracy and the political systems and political parties as they currently exist. And that's sort of an unquestioned dogma is that, you know, we want to be civil and, you know, uh, progressive. And what that means is we just sort of work within this system. Everything needs to be more like representative democracy. And that's the answer to problems. But, you know, look at, for example, uh, well, you have, like, like in Lou Daly's book, uh, God's Economy, published by uh, University of Chicago Press back in 2008, he looks at some early examples, uh, early 20th century thinkers who advocated, and this is, this is a big Marxist theme, uh, the employee ownership of capital, aka employee ownership of the means of production, aka the employee ownership of the businesses in which people are working. Now, that already exists. Uh, there's several in uh, where I live in Rapid City. They're, they're called cooperatives, and the employees own the business, or they own the majority of it. Ace Hardware, if anybody's heard of that, that's a cooperative uh, with tens of thousands of employees. And so you have control of capital, so to speak, through this ownership thing. Now, should that be required? Well, that's an, that's an interesting question. And would, would, it, would a society be better and more just if all businesses were owned by employees or majority owned by employees or something of that form? And I don't know the answer to that question, but I think it's worth asking and exploring because it, it, it addresses some of the similar, the problems that we're all try, kind of trying to deal with, right? Now, so, so the, the big difference between distributism then and socialism is that distributism does not need the state or the political apparatus, and it therefore does not operate in the basis of coercion, where socialism tends to just presume a consequentialist ethic where the ends justifies the means. And it's like, we want to help people we want to provide the safety net. And to do that, we shall summon the police and the armies to extract whatever resources are necessary to provide that social safety net. So those are those two big differences uh, divide, I think, democratic socialism and distributism. They're important. And I think the vast majority of the concerns that democratic socialists have can indeed be addressed in a pretty meaningful and practical way from a distributist perspective. And so that's that's just another point of this conversation that I think is is interesting and worth talking about. Instead of simply saying it's best that you just kind of regurgitating the same stuff, individual liberty, capitalism, blah, blah, blah. It's like, well, let's let's get more sophisticated than that, right? How do we care for one another in a communal, voluntary way? Yeah, it certainly does. And for, for listeners, if you want, you can read the article in the Christian Libertarian Review, Volume 1 at christianlibertarianreview.com. Or if you are just inclined to listen to my conversation with Alex Salter, uh, that would be episode 115 of our podcast. So not actually very long ago that we had a conversation with him, which it was one of the, my favorite conversations. I just I learned a lot. It was a great casual conversation. I thought went really well. There seems to be a difference between how the mainstream media talks about democratic socialism and how like maybe politicians talk about it and how the common discourse 
goes when you're talking to people in general about it. What comments or thoughts do you have on the way in which different people talk about socialisms? Well, we just we just need to be patient with each other and ask what we mean. You know, what what we really mean by certain things. It's one thing to say we want to address inequities, uh, we want to ensure that the vulnerable are protected in society. And another thing to say, you know, you're not Christian if you don't support minimum wage. And I think the distance between those types of things, between the popular policies of the welfare state, the nanny state that takes care of us, and the theories and ideals can be pretty great and sometimes greater than I think people realize. But a lot of those things get lost in our conversations and uh, we just sort of conflate them, you know, and, you know, we put each other in boxes like that. So I've appreciated the wide span of, of opinion on the subject and come to appreciate those differences and just realizing that when people say I'm this and they attach a label and they get millions of likes or coverage in, you know, the Washington Post or mainstream media, it means nothing. It doesn't mean they have to understand those principles or ideals at all. Uh, and we shouldn't assume. And, and that's the thing is politicians are puppets, prostitutes, and people who are owned and have agendas, and they will use whatever words they can to get the support for their particular goals. So we can't take Washington, D.C. too seriously, and uh, especially when it comes to delineating you know, what ideologies or theories or political economies are really trying to accomplish. Now, that's not to say that you know, we should be totally negligent uh, and, and unconcerned about how things develop, because you know, I, what, what matters in some respects isn't even the theory, but what's practiced. And so it's like, you know, whether Marx said this or that, in the name of Marxism, here's what happened, you know. And so, you know, whether it's Sanders or AOC or others who are very upfront and explicit about their type of policies and what they want to see happen, it's important to be aware of that behind these ideas is always an assumption to, to rule or have control and when you give people the control to do good, you give them the same power to do bad. So uh, that's just, you know, an important reflection on you know, political economics in, in general. But yeah, we, we, we treat each other with the same respect that we expect and that we would want in our own conversations. And, you know, we, we don't want to be too hesitant to jump to conclusions. And um, that's why I'm writing this. It's just such a hairy issue. And I have labored over how to arrange it. And it's been kind of a nightmare to wrestle with because there's just so many qualifications and so many terms. And that's why it doesn't seem to produce much fruit in your 140 characters conversations. It just, it can't work. Well, Jamin, thank you for coming on and talking about democratic socialism. I am looking forward to your work on that, your book coming out. And so I am sure we will have you on again to either talk about this issue or talk about all kinds of stuff that you're working on. Thanks for being with us. Yep. Thanks again. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. 
If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. 